Well, good to be back here and see everybody on a non-conference Sunday here. Uh, first time in the pulpit on a non-conference week. So um, good to be with everybody. Could you turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 25? We're going to read a number of different passages, so bear with me. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, just uh, sit tight. And I guess we don't have the overhead screen working. I actually sent some text to Josh. I thought he might be running these, but he's ill and guess your screens are not running anyway. So Exodus chapter 25, beginning at verse 1, it reads as such. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly. With his heart ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and badger skins, and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the patent of the tabernacle and the patent of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. The next reading is in Zechariah, one of the minor prophets near the end of your Old Testament. Zechariah 6, just for two verses, Zechariah 6. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I want that, those words to ring in your ears this morning. Zechariah 6 and verse number 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Let them build me a sanctuary. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. And he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, first book in the New Testament. Matthew 16. Let's hear what the carpenter, the son of the carpenter, has to say. In verse number 18, And I say unto thee, that is to Peter, of course, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now go with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. I hope, I hope you see a little theme developing here as we read these portions. Acts 15 and verse number 16. This is James speaking at the Council of Jerusalem, kind of giving a conclusive remark after hearing others like Paul and Peter that had spoken prior to him, James sort of concludes it this way and says in verse 15, after this, quoting from the book of Amos, I will 
return and will build, there's that word again, the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, who doeth all these things. And then the final one is in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, everybody should be familiar with that chapter when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, carrying out the commission that Jesus told his apostles to carry on by telling them that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in my name, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And here is Peter in Jerusalem as a witness proclaiming the gospel. As you know, he exalted the Lord Jesus Christ. And the cry was, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the word that Peter gave, as Jesus said, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in my name. He says, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation, for the promises unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayer. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent. Now, how was it that it says the Lord added in verse 47? I want you to look at this verse. They repented, they believed, they obeyed the gospel, and it tells us how this matter was really transacted in verse number 47. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the concluding verse says, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved, or other translations, those that were being saved. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. You know, being in the south here is very different from living up in the north. We don't have the sized buildings that you have, or nor do we have the sized congregations of people who occupy the buildings, and it's somewhat of a a bit startles me a little bit when I hear numbers like churches that are 3,000, 6,000, 7,000, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, and 40,000 people gathered. Uh, these are supposed to be evangelical, born again, saved children of the living God. And if it's true, hallelujah, amen. We want to see the Lord add to his church those who he saves. Amen to that. And I don't want to sound too uh, skeptical, but I just wonder how many that go to places like these large-numbered churches really understand the gospel of God's grace. Have they truly been born with the Spirit from on high? Do they know the Lord Jesus Christ 
as their Lord and Savior. And I wonder about the preaching that goes on sometimes in some of these places. And of course, like you, I've listened to, to the content and I wondered. I actually went to a Benny Hinn crusade a few years ago when Benny Hinn came to our city. I don't know if I ever told you this, but um, I, as you know, he draws huge crowds and we have in my city of Worcester, Massachusetts, a place that fits about 16,000 people. So uh, I and some of the brothers in the church decided that we would go there. But we went there and we had made up some brochures that had a picture of Benny Hinn on the front with his white coat on, his hands stretched out with a Bible in one hand, and the title of the pamphlet that we had said, Benny Hinn the Prophet. And we were handing these out, and then when you turned it to the inside, it said Benny Hinn's False Prophecies. And there was a whole list of them, of all the different things, one of them being that Jesus Christ was supposed to, in that coming year, be visible on camera, on stage with Benny Hinn. That that was supposed to be captured on, on camera. Well, a whole list of other things, too, that I don't want to bore you with. But uh, we thought it would be a good opportunity to try to get the people who are going in get their attention about what is the true gospel. So we had a couple of sandwich boards that we carried with us. One of them said, don't give a penny to Benny. The other one was, Benny, stop hindering the truth. Um, it didn't go over too well, uh, the sandwich board carriers. I was doing more of the distributing of literature, and there was a group of people that gathered around me to try to cast demons out of me because I was trying to uh, get them to think about what the Word of God says in regards to the things that were being taught. And anyway, that was uh, just a concern. And I, we actually, uh, I managed to get in every day. Uh, it was about a three-week, three three-a-night series. And just before they closed the door, because they had to, if they had a number that went over 16,000, they had to close the door. They couldn't take any more in. And I pretty much knew when that was going to be happening, so I would slip in. And I didn't have a seat, so I got to stand right behind the stage of where Benny Hinn was so I could observe all this. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be a troublemaker here or let, or, or let you think that I am one, but I do like to get exposure to this so I can see it for myself. So when someone that asks me about Benny Hinn or about crusades of this sort, do I have any comments to make about it? Well, I can say I have some firsthand experience. And by the way, we did make the front page of the newspaper that has a million people circulation with the Benny Hinn sign in uh, an interview on what we were doing, trying to wake up maybe those that are really children of God to be more scrutinizing, to be, it says, let the prophets speak and let the others judge. How do you judge them? You've got to ju judge them by the word of God. If any man speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in him. Isaiah 8, verse 20. Well, anyway, what I'd like to talk to you about this morning is the distinctives of a Reformed church. Now, I didn't know the word Reformed as I, I got saved in the 70s in a dispensational church that was very big on John Nelson Darby, the Schofield Reference Bible, and so on. I would say it would be uh, in the Arminian category uh, of uh, evangelism, although there was definitely some conservative leanings, and there were some that did understand more so the doctrines of grace than others would have. But when I got saved, 
Uh, I had been saved out of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, my parents were Albanian. They came from Albania. And so that was the church that they were affiliated. They never really went themselves, but when I uh, was born, they had me go. Uh, my older brother took me to Sunday school. Probably the first time was maybe about seven years old, maybe eight years old, when I first actually went into a church building. Uh, I might have gone at Easter or Christmas, possibly before that, but um, it took a, a number of years, and I became more and more interested religiously in my denomination's beliefs. And uh, finally, without taking a lot of time, because some of you may have heard my testimony, but finally the Lord did save me, genuinely saved me. And I discovered that as I continued to try to stay in the Orthodox Church, the verse that the Lord used for me to re be removed was Proverbs 21, 16. It says, the man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. And I just felt that I could not remain in a congregation of people that didn't have the vitality of life in Christ. They didn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and there was really uh, not a new song in their mouth whereby they could praise God. So I had to really separate myself. So I did for months, uh, in a, about six months later, my father owned a restaurant not too far from the Albanian church, and I was driving home one day, and I happened to look to my left, and the priest of the church was outside changing his tire. So I said, ooh, I, I took a quick left with my 1974 Volkswagen Super Beetle, and I pulled right over there, and uh, you know he was struggling to try to change his tire, and I said, let me help you. I'll change the tire for you. So he said, oh, that, he, of course he knew me. I was one of his altar boys for a number of years, so I did change his tire, and then he finally said, and he put his, just like this, folded his arms over his chest, and he says, now tell me, Gary, why did you leave the church? Well, I was able now to open up the gospel. And I said, I started saying, and I was just a new believer, so I said, hold on one second. I ran over to my super beetle, and I got out my Bible, and I, start, I had a bunch of underlined passages. I showed, tried to show him and he gave me 20 uninterrupted minutes to be able to share the gospel with him. And I didn't know what his reaction was going to be because he didn't say anything, he just listened. And these were his words. He said, Gary, and he pointed to the brick building, the church building across the street, and he said, see that building? He says, the people that are in it are in darkness. And he said, you know what's worse than that? I'm their leader, and I'm in darkness too. That was a humbling, humbling thing to hear. I wrote a little track called The Confession of a Priest. You know, you're supposed to be confessing to priests. Well, this was a priest that made a confession that he was in darkness. Now, I take it that the Lord used his word, the word of God, because I had really nothing to say of my own. It was basically just scripture after scripture after scripture trying to show them that being a Christian wasn't because of being water baptized, but it's because of faith in Christ alone that saves by God's grace and mercy. And I told them how I've become a new person in Christ. My life has changed. I love the Lord. I have a personal relationship with him, and I'm giving God all the glory. And he, hadn't, he didn't know what to do with this, almost as if he never heard it. And that's why I think he said, the people that are in there are in darkness, and I, the leader, am in darkness too. And you might wonder, whatever happened to him? 
Well, it wasn't long after that. His wife was from communist Albania. She felt very uncomfortable in America, really never learned the language or the customs, and got her husband to in their older age. He was 73 at the time when I had this conversation with him. Shortly after that, they went back to Albania. He took his clerical uh, garments off because you couldn't wear them there at that time. That was in the early 70s. And he, and he and his wife ended up dying there. So I don't know. His name was Sotir Dilogica. Sotir means savior in Greek. Dilogica, I don't know what that means, but that was his last name. So let's talk about the church. What is the church? God's desire for Israel was build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now that's amazing to think that God is willing to tabernacle among us to dwell with people and then ask those people through Moses to make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And it tells us in Hebrews 8, 5 that about Moses, he was told to make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mountain. God was very specific on all of the details on how that tabernacle was to be constructed for the prime purpose of making me, God, a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. And where did he dwell? In between the two angelic cherubs. On each side of the mercy seat on the ark, uh, where the, uh, uh, the mercy seat was placed on the ark of the covenant, and that was God's dwelling place. That's where the Lord hovered over, and that glory clouded indicated his presence and after its completion it says the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle make me a sanctuary well we we know that that sanctuary did not last eventually it it evolves into the solomonic temple and we know that even that the lord departed from it we get that in the book of ezekiel that the spirit began to move out of the city, out of the temple, and eastward, and moved away. But when the Lord Jesus comes, now a new structure is about to be erected. One that he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nebuchadnezzar had been successful in destroying it, burning it down to the ground. It had its ups and downs. It had been destroyed, rebuilt, and so on. And it was really never, ever what it was going to evolve into becoming when Jesus puts it under new management and says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is a church? A church is a composite of people who are regenerated, who are born again. They are then sound in mind. I want to get that point across. They are sound in mind, a new mind. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Our spirits have been renewed by the Spirit of God within us. Paul writes to the Philippians, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints which are in Christ Jesus at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. To who? To the saints, to the Hagios, to those that are separated. The word church, ecclesia, means called out ones. If you are saved, you are called out of the world, and you are now a part of the church of the living God. But I want to focus on the local church. When he writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, he says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus 
with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Those are the ones that compose a local church or should compose a local church. So we believe that a membership of people, and I think membership is actually implied in the scriptures, you can't hold a, an, organ, an organism without an organization. We that are saved are part of the organism, the body of Christ, but we therefore, on a local level, we need to be organized. And we have elders and we have deacons who oversee the local church so that it can be conducted in a way that's in harmony with the mind and the will of God. So regeneration of all that believe. How do we know who are, who are the regenerated? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. We know that we can't be the final judges in someone's uh, credibility of conversion. That's all we can do is to listen to them and watch them and hear. Jesus says, by their fruits you shall know them. Paul says, uh, well, the author of Hebrews, I should say, uh, tells us in Hebrews chapter 8 about it's impossible for those who have fallen away, but he says, we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. Things that accompany salvation. If someone claims to be saved, there should be a, some accompaniment, accompaniment of their conversion by way of a changed life. Uh, we'll have a baptism coming up at our local church next week. The three ladies that are going to be baptized, they're all in their 50s, all were saved in their, you could say, later part of their life, or second half of their life, uh, amazingly, by the grace of God. But for each of them, I provide them a questionnaire so that they can examine themselves. And then obviously there's the opportunity for myself or the elders, we would get together with the individual and hear their testimony. Do you belong to Christ? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Are you sure you're going to heaven? Do you believe that Christ died in your place? Has your life changed? Are you a new creation? Are things different than the way they used to be? These are all the things that accompany salvation. Now, I know in some cases, when a child grows up in a Christian home, they're obviously, they're not going to be as radically changed as someone that had no Christian background whatsoever or was brought up in a hell-raising home, so to speak, that they never really understood or heard the gospel at all. That's understandable. I like the way that um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones sort of describes different kinds of conversion. He says, it's as if when somebody goes from one location to another location, and before getting to the, their final location, a rainstorm, thunderstorm breaks out, and pouring rain like cats and dogs come, and they get into their home, and they're soaking wet from that rainstorm that just kind of came and went. Well, whereas someone else who leaves their premises, going to their destiny, and all along the way, there's sort of a drizzle. And they end up getting into the same location that they wanted to get to finally, and they're soaking wet, just like the person that got soaking wet in the rainstorm. So sometimes, in some cases, and this is why we can't try to uh, put everybody into the, put the foot into the same shoe for everybody, we have to recognize that God deals with people in different ways. But nevertheless, there should be some similarities. 
And what we have in common is what unites us to one another. We are those who call upon the name of the Lord. We belong to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So that we can, like Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, he says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you will bear his judgment whosoever. How did Paul know that? Because he said he had confidence in them in the Lord. They were the Lord's people. And therefore, like in 1 Corinthians, put away from among yourselves that how could the church put away someone unless they had the mind of Christ? They are regenerated people. I was preaching at a prison one time, and uh, it was on uh, Thanksgiving evening, and um, the, the place was packed out. My family came with me. Uh, I preached the gospel, and the Lord seemed to be blessing the word. The Spirit seemed to be... It, it, at liberty, I thought, in, in, in the handling of the word and the preaching of the word and even the reception of the word. And it was a great night, I thought. And then a few days later, I had gone back to the prison. I met with the assistant chaplain. He says, brother, what a great message that was. He was praising the Lord for the presentation of the gospel. But he said, I can't believe it. You didn't give an altar call. Do you realize how many people would have been saved if you just told them if they would come forward and I said brother there was an altar call I says I talked about the altar of Calvary how Jesus on the altar was hanging there who bore sins in his body on the tree and I told people come to Christ believe on him trust him obey him you could be saved if you'd only repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ didn't have to say come forward but if the Spirit of God is bidding you, won't you come? You will come. No man comes to me except the Father which has sent me, what? Draws him. So I wanted to reinforce with him, that is the gospel. It's the gospel that saves. The altar call, I call it the apocrypha call. Because it goes outside and beyond the gospel. Is not the gospel itself sufficient to save? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I love to use that verse. I preach every Saturday at a uh, methadone clinic for opioid addicts, and there's hundreds, actually 2,000, go through that every day. And the Lord has blessed us with a permit from the police department, and we have lots of people. Uh, we give out food. We have donations for food. We get clothing, and, and they all come up. We give them Bibles, tracts, pray with them, tell them the gospel, give them a personal contact information, if possible. But I love to begin by saying, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Or I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And what a privilege it is to sound forth the word. The word is life-giving and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Just let the word of God go out and let God do the rest. Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse. In the city, she utters her words. And I beg, beg people, hear the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yes, the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. 
sound mind, regenerated people, those are the people that are people who are church people, if you will, the ecclesia. Secondly, a strange gospel will produce strange children. A gospel without repentance will be like putting a tuxedo on a pig. You're giving them something that they don't really deserve to have, to possess, to claim. Unless they have genuinely repented of their sins and turned to the Lord, they cannot be saved. I, I got an uh, invitation recently. I had put out a scripture text to a bunch of people, and one of them was a Catholic priest. And he responded to it, and he said, would you mind coming over and studying the book of Ephesians with me? Would I mind coming over with a Catholic priest and studying the book of Ephesians? I'd have to be out of my mind. I'd have to be like that pig with a tuxedo on, not really a believer. You'd want to be there with a person like that. Well, anyway, we went there, and uh, I didn't know where this was going to go. This was really strange, you know. He just happened to be someone who graduated from the same college that I graduated from, too. He graduated a few years before uh, Fauci, uh, by the way, graduated. But nevertheless, he didn't want to go that way when I mentioned that to him. But anyway, so he says to me this. He says, uh, after, you know, just casual introductions with one another and hi and how are you and all that sort of thing, he said, now, Gary, he said, do you believe that God loves everybody and that Jesus died for everybody? And I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Am I in the right place talking? This guy, where's he coming from? I'm thinking, is he challenging my Calvinism by asking me, do I believe that God loves everybody and that Jesus died for everybody's sins? So I had to pause really and think, I don't think he has enough theology to, to ask an, a question as an intelligent Arminian. So I was kind of reading in between the lines, and I said, well, what do you mean that Jesus died for everybody? So then he took up Ephesians, and he started reading, and I'm going to do that. Now, it's a well-known portion. It's a phenomenal portion. And it goes like this. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Now, I want... He was trying to emphasize the us, and I'll tell you why. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, according as chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us Accept it in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom. And he says, isn't that proof that God loves everybody? I said, well, who do you mean by everybody? He says, I mean everybody. I says, do you mean the Muslims? Yes, Muslims. Hindus? Yes, Hindus. You love he loves everybody irrespective of what they believe. How about atheists? Yes, God loves them as well. And did Jesus die for them? Yes. He began to say, yes, he, God is so much of a loving God that he loves. So I said, does that mean that everybody's going to go to heaven? And he didn't know how to answer that one. I said, well, if God loves everybody equally and Jesus died for everybody and atoned for everyone's sins, that everyone's sins who's atoned for, they should be in heaven. He didn't know how to carry on from that point on. Well, anyway, we met probably about another eight or ten more times. 
We haven't met lately, but boy, we've been having some wonderful conversation. We got to a point where we were singing together, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Lord of glory died, my riches gains I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was very moving to tell you the truth. And he said to me, he says, Gary, after meeting with you, because I, I went to Isaiah 53, I told him how the Lord saved me. I hope I'm not going too long. Please let me know. I'm, I'm losing track of time here. But Isaiah 53, 5, I told him that's how the Lord saved me. The verse, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. So I, I went through the book of Isaiah 53 with him. The next day in Mass, no, we met on a, a, a Tuesday. That coming Sunday, he actually gave a homily on Isaiah 53. And he sent me an email. He says, Gary, I want you to go on our website and notice what I spoke on in the Mass. Now, this guy's a very dynamic, charismatic priest. He's got the place chuck-filled in four services. He's very charismatic-like. He's not a charismatic, per se, but he's very dynamic individual. And uh, I just don't know where the Lord uh, went with this whole thing. I, I pray for him, and I hope he, he genuinely, genuinely has come to faith in Christ. I could tell you more about a lot of those conversations that we had, that I was loving him, and I was so glad he keep inviting me, us. he keep, keep saying, do you want to do this again? I says, if you want to, I'm there. You just name it and we'll get together. And that went on and on and on up till just recently. We, he's put a pause on it for whatever reason. I'm not really sure. Could be as healthy. He's actually 85 years old, but he's a very keen-minded guy. So anyway, getting back to our subject here, uh, that was Father Bob. I call him Father Bob. That's what he was known as. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Acts 26, when Paul is sent out by Jesus, again, and I want to emphasize the fact, build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Jesus adds to the church daily those that are saved. He sends the apostle Paul out and he gives them these instructions. To do what? Now I do send thee to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. What a gospel content that is. Open their eyes, turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all them that are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the power content of the gospel that Jesus Christ commissions Paul to preach. So that's what the gospel should do with people. Open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, for the forgiveness of their sins and to gain an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. How we need to preach a gospel that does that very thing. Make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. If we're preaching the gospel faithfully and spirit-filled, with the Spirit ministering to souls, and when God sends it out with power. As Paul was going to leave Corinth at one time, for whatever reason, maybe he felt that his ministry period was, was terminated, and the Lord says to him, Fear not, I am with you, and no man shall set on you to hurt you, for I have much people in this city. And he continued in Corinth. 
Paul himself says how that he was sent uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, uh, let me get that verse one second. Sometimes my mind doesn't catch up with my thoughts. I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So those that are regenerated have a sound mind. Those that are presenting the gospel must do it with a sound gospel content. And those who are generally, uh, who are uh, soundly regenerated, born again, converted, saved, should be added to the local church. Now let's talk about a reformed church. What are some of the distinctives of a reformed church? The first thing is that we want to be emphatic on the essentials of the Christian faith. That's the basic. That's the elementary principles, if you will. What would be the essentials? The nature of God. The Trinity. The deity of Jesus Christ. The atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. His bodily resurrection. His virgin birth. And lastly, and there are more than just these, but I would say these would be very foundational doctrines that cannot be compromised or negotiated the last one would be the inspiration and the authority of the scriptures. If this book is not the final authority on all matters, then we are in trouble. Then we're just left up to our own whims, and anybody can say what they want to, and anything goes. But what is more specific about a Reformed church? Some of them I've already hinted at. We don't have an altar call, and, and we've had people, probably you have two visiting your church, and and wondering, well, how come you don't have an altar call? Which is a common thing that's done in many Baptist-type churches, at least. Um, and it's very clear that we don't believe that we need to call people forward or to raise their hand. I was talking to a neighbor of my daughter who just moved, by the way, up to Spring Hill here, and he was telling me that he works for a company that actually tries to save people online, and you just have to push buttons. And when you push a certain bus button, that after you've said... The, the sinner's prayer, the question is, did you just pray this prayer and accept Jesus as your Savior? Then you push the button, and then you get registered as someone who's been saved. Now, I don't doubt that God can save anybody through the message of the gospel, of course, but it's the methods that are used sometimes that are trying to almost trick people in trying to sort of short-circuit the gospel by going in a direction that seems to make the gospel more palatable to people. Well, we don't have an altar call, but we preach the gospel, believing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. So I think what is very central to a Reformed church is obviously the doctrines of grace, which I don't think that the, the majority of evangelical churches would consent to. That is, that we believe in total depravity, that man is is ruined by the fall. And then unless the Lord builds the house, the labor labors in vain. Except the Lord keeps the city, uh, unless the, except the labor labors, keeps the city, except the Lord, uh, you know the verse I'm talking about. Psalm 127, verse 1. It's the Lord that does the work. We can take no credit of, my own, of our own. Paul says, of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Who's the him? The one that says, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So you can praise God if you're saved that the carpenter's son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is building the church, saving people, adding them to his body, making them one with himself. So we believe man is so depraved that it, we're a, we are 100% dependent on the Spirit of God to move us. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or where it goeth. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You often hear the verse people talking about, did you receive Jesus Christ? You've got to receive him. Yes, you do. But where does that power to receive come from? Those that do so are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So to receive Christ takes God to initiate the desire of the individual to want to will to be saved and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's an unconditional election. And I know you know the tulip very well. You've got a great teacher, pastor in your church that I know does not leave any stone unturned. And I know you're very well taught, so I don't have to go through the tulip with you in, fine, in a fine-tuned way. I know you know it, but these are fundamental to a church that is reformed. Unconditional election, limited atonement, which is the tough one. Undoubtedly, it's tough. But I think if we, when we try to put the puzzle of the doctrines of grace together, you know that they either stand or fall on every one of those particular points. If total depravity is false, then all the other letters fall with it. And if limited atonement is false, so does that as well. Because if God elected a people from before the foundation of the world, it's expected that people who were chosen, predestined before time began, would be the people that Christ had to die for. Correct? It only makes sense if he died for the non-elect, those that were not chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Then if he died for all, then his efforts would have been in vain because some who he died for never got the merits of the work of Christ. The hymn writer says, My judgment, God will not twice demand. Once at my Savior's bleeding hand, and then not again at mine. If Jesus paid the price in full for my sins, I can never give an account of them to God because the Bible says I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more, Hebrews 8, verse 12. That's a promise. There is now therefore no judgment or condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. How important that doctrine of the atonement being defined, being designed for those whom the Father had chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then, of course, the irresistible grace whom he did predestinate, them he also called. If you're saved, you've been called. God called you. Whether it was like in that drizzle fashion as I described er earlier from Martin Lloyd-Jones or where, whereas it was a thunderstorm of a revelation to your soul, much like the Apostle Paul, either way, it was still the call of God. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Jesus says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. The real evangelist is Jesus Christ. He's the builder of the church. So when the request is made, build me a sanctuary, it's the one in Zechariah 6.12. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, which is what we are. 
We're the temple of the Lord, and he dwells in the midst of us by the Holy Spirit of God, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are builded together to form a habitation of God through the Spirit. There it is. Make me a sanctuary. How is that erected? For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the firm foundation upon which every believer stands. And we can praise the Lord for that. And then the perseverance of the saints. Do we believe a, a, a real believer can fall? Yes, we believe a believer can fall, but to and even fall away from grace, like the Galatians did. I marvel that you are so removed, removed from him that you have fallen from grace, but to fall out of grace is another story. I like the way R.C. Sproul put it. He says a Christian can fall seriously and radically, but never fully or finally. He says, if you have it, you never lose it. But if you lose it, you never had it. You got that? If you have it, you never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. If you lose it, you're an apostate. Because we believe in the perseverance of the saints, that we will endure to the end. It, it, it's God who worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, Philippians 1. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sound doctrine. And lastly, in regard to a distinctive of a Reformed church, we want to give God all the glory. It's God-centered, Christ-centered. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about him. Amen. To God be the glory. Amen. Great things he has done. Amen. To God be the glory. Um, I, I had a friend who, um, he became a friend, he saw my name in a, uh, on the front page of the paper, the, the local paper did an article on the open air preaching that I was doing, and this police officer uh, had read about me, he was just saved himself, he, he called me on the phone, he asked if he could join me, he said, I think that's a great thing you're doing, so I said, I'd like to meet you, talk with you, get to know you a little bit first, and I did, I was satisfied that he was genuinely born again. But uh, he definitely had a very Arminian way about him, and his church was very Arminian. And he invited me to come down to the police station one day. Now, the police station uh, um, has 450 uh, police. Uh, it's, a, it's a big operation. And so uh, I'm, he, he was working at, one of, at his desk. So we, we were chatting, uh, and uh, while we began our conversation, the captain uh, of the force came in, uh, he was dressed like an undercover agent. He had his gun under his belt and so on, and he had his sport coat on. And he came and he sat between us and he put his feet up like this and his arms like this. And he was just listening to us going back and forth, debating and arguing on the doctrines of salvation. Is it of God or is it of man? Is it me or was it the Lord? How much of me? How much of God? And you've got to do this. You've got to do this. And I said, no, no, no. It's you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And we're going back and forth with verses. And then finally the captain said, hold on. I've been listening to you guys for like 20 minutes. This is the bottom line for me. He says, I want to know which one of your positions gives God the glory the most. Yeah. I said, that's it. Paul says, all the promises of God in Christ are yea and in him, amen, 
to the glory of God by us. Which one gives God the most glory? Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul says, God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. It says in Philippians, I mean, uh, Colossians 1.18, that in all things he must have the preeminence in the local church. A church should be all about Christ and him alone. Someone said, let sex, S-E-C-T-S, and systems fall, and Jesus' name be all in all. That's what a true church is. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. Help us, O oh Lord, to be able to understand it more and more and appreciate these wonderful gems of Scripture, Lord, so that we can enjoy you more, that we can be enriched more and more in the gospel, that our local church here and elsewhere, that we can be built up on a most holy faith, that we can truly be a people that exalt the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy, worthy, worthy. Lord, you've given him a name above every name. And we are the people, O oh God, who call upon that worthy name. We are the ones, Lord, who you have chosen to put your name upon. And Lord, we just pray that you would bless us, that we would glorify you in our midst. Thank you, Lord, for Grace Baptist Church here, for every brother and sister, that you have done the miracle of new birth with them, brought them into faith in Christ, and given them a new name, Lord and a name written in heaven. Lord, we just give you the glory, the honor, and the praise. And we ask, Father, that you would bless your word for your name's sake as we give you all the honor in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>
He was waxing eloquent. <laughs> he said, I think he's been waxing elephants. Well, I told her, I said, all you have to do is just write back and ask him this. Why do men die? Why do we die? Why do we get old and gray-headed and finally we draw our last breath and we die? Why is that? What caused that? Is that something from the love of God? What causes that? Where does death come from? Well, the Scripture is the only book that answers that question question. It says that sin came into the world through the man Adam and death by sin and so death passed upon all men. That's what that's the only answer. And so as I said earlier today it was the love of God that sent Christ. Christ didn't come to make God loving. It was the love of God that sent Christ into the world to die for sinners. I'm a sinner. And I tell you how I know I'm one, because I'm getting older and I'm going to die. And death is a result of sin. And my friend, if you're not a sinner, you're never going to die. But if you're looking at the grave, you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And that's what Gary's been talking to us about this morning. We stand on the Bible, on the Word of God. We may not understand everything that's in it, but we're not saved by all just what we believe. I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And I've committed myself to Christ. And since I've committed myself to Christ, I have sinned. I have sinned since I committed myself to Christ. So I not only need him to initially save me, to justify me, I need him to preserve me. I need him to keep walking. I need him to, when I get knocked down, to get back up and call back on him again. Can anybody agree to that? Well, that's, that's the hope that we have in the God of the Bible. I want to make it clear, he'll save anybody who wants to be saved. At the same time, we also read in the scripture that when the angel said to Joseph about the Lord Jesus, he said, you call his name Jesus, for he shall what? He shall what? Save his people. So he has some people. Now, God knows who those people are. I don't know who they are, and it's not any of my business who they are. My job is to say whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do a lot of, Gary began his message today by saying there are a lot of people who say they believe and apparently they don't because we don't see any kind of anything in their life that's a changed life. Nobody wants to perish in their sins, but only those people who have been dealt with by the Lord really want to to love the Lord, want to serve the Lord, want to walk with the Lord. That's what I want. So I don't have any doubt about his goodness and about his grace. My doubt is all about me. I know all of you can relate to that. But he will save us even when we fail him. He doesn't fail because he's the one who's faithful. We're not. We're not saved by our faithfulness. He saves us because he's faithful. Let's stand together.
I want you to order that uh, message. It'll be on a CD or DVD, and you can go back and listen to it again. There was a lot of information in there. And you can go back and listen to that again. But like he said, the Lord has a tabernacle. He has a temple, and he's going to build it. And he is building it <laughs> at this point. We have plenty of food back there in the back. I hope you will avail yourself of that. I hope you'll come back and eat and fellowship with us. We'll be delighted to have you. You can eat what you want, when you want, leave when you want. We don't have any kind of rules or regulations about that. And I, I think that it's paying some respect to those who've prepared all this food by coming back there and eating some of it. So why don't you do that? You don't have to stay long. Just come and fellowship a little bit and get you something to eat. And uh, then you can leave when you want to. All right, anything else that needs to be mentioned? Uh, okay, again, I want to say please continue to pray for Lynn and I. Pray for Ruby Perry. Pray for Wally Hatton. Pray for Bob Castle. Pray for Joe Turner. And there are others. Those are the ones I can remember who are seriously ill. Remember them before the Lord. All right, let us pray. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us, who gave himself for us, and we do believe on him as our Lord and Savior. We do confess that we have no righteousness but his. We have no good works that you would accept but his. But we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to your mercy, you've saved us. By the renewing of the Holy Spirit. By bringing us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the great salvation that Gary talked to us about. Pray that you give us an understanding of it. And now, Lord, we thank you for the food that has been brought. The food that has been prepared. We ask you to nourish our bodies with that food, to strengthen us, to use us in our service for you. We thank you for all of these blessings that we enjoy in this nation, and particularly in this assembly, in this church. I thank you for every single person who's here present, those who aren't here, some are traveling, some are ill. And Lord, we just ask you to keep us faithful, looking to you, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask you to nourish our bodies and strengthen us with the food. Bless our fellowship, we ask in the name.